0: Historically, Congress, when it's talked about infrastructure projects and infrastructure bills, it's talked about water, it's talked about roads, bridges, highways. Energy's never really been part of that discussion. So it was a, a big deal for us in a, in a big focus to make sure that energy infrastructure was frankly part of the conversation and considered a piece of this in the minds of Congress. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast
1: that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Reel. On this podcast, we frequently reference the bipartisan infrastructure law. A historic piece of legislation that provided significant research, development, demonstration, and deployment funding for new clean energy technologies and the infrastructure that will be needed to achieve our net zero goals. Today, we'll be talking to Sandy Safro, EEI Associate General Counsel of Energy and Technology Regulation, and Patrick Arness, EEI Senior Director of Government Relations, about a few recent Department of Energy program announcements funded by the bipartisan infrastructure law that will help enhance grid reliability and resilience advance the use of hydrogen as a clean energy source, and improve broadband access for unserved and underserved communities. Sandy and Patrick, welcome to the show. Glad to be here.
2: Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here.
1: In October, DOE made two major program announcements. The department announced the Grid Resilience and Innovation Partnerships, or GRIP, program, and it selected seven regional clean hydrogen hubs across the country to receive funding as part of DOE's larger hydrogen hub program. Both of these are funded through the bipartisan infrastructure law, and it's exciting to see these programs come to fruition. We've also seen recent movements on the broadband aspect of the funding, which we'll touch on more later. Patrick, to start out, can you give us some details about the GRIP program, how much funding is being allocated, how many member companies have been awarded funds to bolster their energy grids, and what kind of resilience and enhancement projects are they working on?
0: Absolutely. I think it's important to start with the administration establishing the Grid Deployment Office, uh, which is new at DOE. It has oversight of a lot of the infrastructure law programs, including GRIP, uh, the Smart Grid Investment Grant Program, hydropower, uh, nuclear efforts. So it has a lot of authority and has been an important focal point for us uh, as we have focused on implementation efforts for our members. Part of that, there's the $10.5 billion for enhancing grid flexibility and improving the reliability and resilience of the energy grid. Uh, This includes addressing the growing threats of extreme weather and climate change uh, that our members are facing on a daily basis. The first round of funding was announced in October. DOE has already announced a second round of funding opportunity here in November. So they're moving fast to try and help our members take advantage of this money and to help their customers. So these projects will help our members address and access, you know, uh, affordable, reliable, clean energy for their customers like they have been doing for quite a while now and they are designed these these programs are designed to minimize the cost impacts these investments have on customers and uh, we've had more than 20 members selected under these various grant programs and many more who applied so there's there's no shortage of interest we're pleased to see how quickly D. we had moved on this second round of funding because members want and need this money uh, many of the companies are using the funding to Harden their energy grids against hurricanes and wildfires by hardening critical transmission lines, enhancing substations to mitigate flood damage, optimizing and automating distributed energy resources, uh, and many other things. You know, all these are focused on ensuring reliability in general, while also supporting their communities by focusing on underserved areas, starting projects that will create union jobs and other efforts. And Congress had many competing
1: priorities when it came to allocating funds for the bipartisan infrastructure law. Why was it critical to dedicate such a significant portion for the GRIP program and for DOE to move quickly in implementation? And I I know you touched on this a little bit, but it sounds like this funding is critical for electric companies that are focused on making sure these investments are done in a way that's affordable for customers.
0: Let me, again, take another quick step back. Historically, Congress, when it's talked about infrastructure projects and infrastructure bills it's talked about water it's talked about roads bridges highways energy's never really been part of that discussion so it was a a big deal for us in a a big focus to make sure that energy infrastructure was frankly part of the conversation and considered piece of this in the minds of of Congress and as we were talking about that highlighting all the things that our member companies are doing and hope to do, I think it started to click for members of Congress that this needs to be part of the equation. And part of that discussion was reliability. Top of mind for our members, top of mind for their customers. And they're facing more threats from extreme weather, as as I mentioned, and trying to be proactive in these investments and planning thoughtfully for the years ahead. There's probably
1: been an element of this can't happen here, but we've seen extreme flooding in places like Kentucky and Vermont, and obviously, wildfires in areas that haven't historically had them so I think it's, it's good to see folks are thinking proactively and saying what can we what sort of prudent investments can we make now to mitigate this risk rather than disaster happens and now we need to go back and redesign the system it's good that folks seem to be kind of learning from some of the unfortunate experiences of others
0: yeah we know that storms and other natural disasters will attack anywhere they don't care about which congressional district it is uh in and, and they they know we know that Proactive planning, proactive investment, much better than coming in after. Great.
1: And Sandy, can you give us the basics about the Regional Clean Hydrogen Hub Program, or the H2 hubs, as some call them, and how many EEI member companies are involved in the first projects that have been announced?
2: Yeah, sure, Brian. Um, So as you mentioned, the Regional Clean Hydrogen Hubs Program is funded through and actually was created in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Congress allocated up to $8 billion for the creation of at least four of these regional hydrogen hubs. And the aim of the hubs is really to form the foundation of a national clean hydrogen network, as hydrogen is a clean energy and storage source, and also to provide another way to reduce carbon emissions from multiple sectors of the economy that are considered hard to abate or heavy emitting. In the bipartisan infrastructure law, DOE was required to establish at least four of these hubs, and the selections had to include diversity in the production method or production pathway. So at least one hub has to use renewable energy, at least one has to use nuclear, and at least one has to use fossil fuels to produce hydrogen. And that's exactly what we saw when DOE made its selections on October 13th, which was a much-awaited and very exciting announcement for our members and for folks in the hydrogen sector at large. Um, As you mentioned also, Brian... DOE allocated up to $7 billion for seven hubs uh, when it made its announcement in October. And these hubs are all across the United States. We have some in California and the Pacific Northwest. There are some in um, the kind of Texas region of the country. We've got a few in kind of the northern part of the Midwest, I guess you could call it. Um, and then a few hubs kind of on the East Coast in the United States. So really kind of all across the country. We have 17 member companies who are involved in these hubs, and our members are participating in each of the seven regional hubs, which is also really exciting and and really awesome. The funding can be used for uh, the demonstration of production, processing, delivery, storage, and end use of clean hydrogen.
1: So that really covers quite a large area of the country, and that seems to be somewhat deliberate. Uh, What is the goal of this program and really the goal of investing so much into the demonstration and deployment of these hydrogen projects?
2: Yeah, so the goal of the program is, I think as Secretary Granholm has said, to catalyze a U.S. hydrogen economy. and. Um, I think really the, the goal of investing so much in demonstration and deployment gets a little bit to the question of why are we talking about hydrogen and why are we talking about hydrogen now? And for me, it always brings to mind the kind of famous quote that hydrogen, and some have said fusion too, is always a decade away. And I think at this point in time, we're actually in a bit of a different circumstance than we have been before because we have many countries around the world looking at deploying hydrogen as part of their energy economy. Some of this is an outgrowth of the Paris Agreement um, and, of course, the the COP meetings. We had one going on um, just this month, but really just a focus on a global level at reducing carbon emissions and reducing the impacts of climate change. And hydrogen, as we talked a little bit about already, is viewed as a tool in the tool belt for reducing those emissions. So even prior to this announcement, I remember companies have been researching and working on demonstration projects for clean hydrogen. But the Hydrogen Hubs program is really an opportunity to help scale up production and accelerate hydrogen deployment.
1: Can you speak to the importance of having in place the ecosystem for hydrogen? It's one thing to know that you've demonstrated how to produce it, or you know how the end use user would be utilizing it, but you need to get it from point A to point B and sometimes on to point C. So how important is it to make sure that you're, you're, or it sounds as though this might be designed to try to build up that ecosystem?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, what you just described is critically important. We use hydrogen in this country today. We've used it for the last 80 years or so at least, but we've really used it in very limited applications compared to what we're thinking about for a hydrogen economy of the hopefully not very distant future and as a result we really need to build up not just supply and demand but also the ecosystem to connect that supply and demand and as i think about that i think of infrastructure with the word sort of in quotes because you have physical infrastructure so you need to build out pipelines we have only about 1600 miles of hydrogen pipe in the united states which on a comparative level is very small. We have over 3 million miles of natural gas pipeline in the US. So the hydrogen system is much less robust. You need to build out, again, the the transportation, you need to build out the storage, but then you also need to build out the commercial quote unquote infrastructure. So that means thinking about building out standardized contracts to make contracting for supply and demand much easier the way we have it for other commodities like natural gas and electricity, and also to build out supportive commercial infrastructure. So to have things like a standardized method of accounting for emissions for hydrogen and uh, certificates of origin, which is something that other countries have been using as they've been thinking about building out their hydrogen economies.
1: And we know that we have FERC regulating a lot of the the transmission for the electric sector. I know pipelines have their own regulator. Who regulates hydrogen?
2: (laughs) Oh, Brian, (laughs) how long do we have for this conversation? I'll be brief on it. So there is some debate right now in the hydrogen community about regulation of particularly interstate hydrogen pipeline infrastructure. As you mentioned, FERC has primary jurisdiction and exclusive jurisdiction over interstate natural gas pipelines. The Natural Gas Act, which is what gives FERC that authority, does not include hydrogen in it. And so there's a lot of uh, folks out there who believe that the Gas Act, the Natural Gas Act, would need to be amended to give FERC that authority. We do have, as I mentioned, 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipe in the U.S. Uh, Some of that is interstate. My understanding is that the Surface Transportation Board is the federal agency that has jurisdiction over those interstate hydrogen pipelines. However, there are some ways in which the STB's jurisdiction is very different from FERC's jurisdiction over natural gas pipelines. And one of the ways in which it is significantly different is that STB does not have federal citing authority. And so as a result, the current interstate hydrogen pipelines go to each individual state to get a certificate of convenience and public necessity to construct and operate their pipes And there has been a lot of discussion about whether that would be the most effective and efficient way to manage the build-out of the hydrogen pipeline infrastructure that would be needed in this country to support the development, really, of a hydrogen economy at scale.
1: Got it. So that definitely layers on nicely with the ecosystem challenges that everyone's focused on. Definitely. And one more quick question, and then we'll pull Patrick back in. Just what might be a few examples of hydrogen projects that EI member companies currently are working on? and how do they see hydrogen as a tool for clean energy transition?
2: Yeah, so our members are working on hydrogen projects really across the hydrogen value chain. We have a number of members who are working on hydrogen production projects, including producing hydrogen from renewable energy, wind, solar, etc., nuclear. We also have members who are working on a related technology, which would be carbon capture and storage, or CCS, and those folks are working on projects to produce hydrogen from fossil fuel. And of course, in the energy economy that we're talking about, we would want to be using CCS as as part of that production process. We have a number of members who have distribution pipelines in their portfolios, and they are looking at how much hydrogen they could put on those pipelines to help serve their customers. We also have members who are looking at using hydrogen for heating applications in residential and commercial spaces. And then, of course, finally, I think many of our members and many of your listeners will probably be very familiar with this, but we have a number of members who are exploring the potential of blending hydrogen with natural gas in EGUs for power generation and looking at how much they could blend, whether they need to change out systems, modify their turbines, et cetera.
1: And EGUs, those are electric generating units. Correct. So Patrick, as listeners know, EEI and our member companies were heavily involved in advocating for and supporting many elements of the bipartisan infrastructure law. And then the work started with implementation, and I imagine that's a pretty heavy lift. So what has EEI's role been in shaping these programs, and what else is EEI doing to help implement the bipartisan infrastructure law and also, I guess, the Inflation Reduction Act? because uh, there's certainly complementary programs there, uh, to make sure we're maximizing the customer benefits of these investments.
0: Yeah, Brian. It takes a village. The first step obviously was helping to shape the programs as they were being crafted in Congress, whether it was GRIP or the Transmission Facilitation Program, hydrogen hubs, broadband transportation across the board. And then taking that and engaging with the various agencies with guidance from members, obviously, about What is going to make these programs workable for them? Because at the end of the day, if they can't use them effectively, then it doesn't benefit benefit anybody. We've engaged with DOT, Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, Commerce, sort of via broadband on a regular basis saying, here's what we think we need from programs. Here's what we'd like to see in terms of eligibility criteria, et cetera. So we've held a few, what we call them summits with the various federal agencies to talk through their thought process, what they would like to do, and then to hear feedback from our members about what they would like the programs to look like and really just maintaining an open dialogue. I think we've seen the fruits of that, really, in sort of how the programs have been laid out. They're not perfect, but I think overall it's been successful for our members and for the agencies to hear from them often and certainly their concerns. And it's it's an ecosystem. And you know as we're talking about growing domestic supply, main, growing domestic manufacturing, hydrogen, how do we sustain this economy? How do we support load growth? Like all this stuff is intertwined. And so we try and also reiterate that to the H12 look a little bit bigger than just one program. There are bigger implications here. And you've mentioned broadband a couple of times,
1: and I Recently, had read an article that talked about how a few, few of our members, like Alabama Power, Baltimore Gas and Electric, Appalachian Power, and I think Mid-American, were awarded funding through the bipartisan infrastructure law to expand what's called middle mile broadband in their service territory. Can you lay out what middle mile broadband means and what kind of provisions do the law include, and really why has this been such a priority for Congress? Because it seems like that had a lot of bipartisan support.
0: It's been a priority for a long time, and and frankly, the stars just kind of aligned. Uh, with the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is why you have to take advantage of and push so hard for robust funding and and the types of programs. Uh, Middle miles, what the name implies, like you have sort of beginning and then the end, and there wasn't a lot of connectivity to areas in need uh, for broadband because the profit wasn't necessarily there. It's a a hard business model uh, to make the argument for. And so Congress wanted to help facilitate that. And so they said, hey, we will help Go from point A to point B uh, a little more seamlessly, and make sure that, especially in this digitized economy, that everyone has access. Whether you're talking about school or or our members and how much they're using that technology and laying fiber or all the all the different grid components that they're putting on now. That wire that connectivity. Got it. So there's a lot of work to lay fiber going on already, and they're
1: able to kind of piggyback on those efforts.
0: Yes, it's it, it made a big difference. You know, $65 billion to improve the internet access for customers is going to be, again, good for them, but also take advantage of the work that our members are doing across the country and certainly working with, in, in a lot of cases, organized labor, which They've been great partners.
1: There are a lot of communities really across the country, as I understand it, that either have no access to broadband or minimal access to broadband. And you think rural communities, but I think there's also examples of that being the case in, in cities as well or some suburban areas. So um, for those of us who might take quick internet access for granted, um, there there are folks who really haven't had the opportunities and, and the business development that comes along with having that. That access, so you definitely see the need, really, to to and just the opportunities that creates. I agree, hundred percent, Brian. So, Sandy, as we think about implementation and other provisions of the bipartisan infrastructure law, what more would EEI to member companies like to see done in the space of hydrogen, including building the ecosystem you mentioned earlier to help us reach a net zero economy and advance the clean energy transition in an affordable way?
2: Yeah, uh, it's such a great question, Brian, and I think we talked already quite a bit about the importance of the ecosystem, and I appreciate the question on regulation of some of the infrastructure for hydrogen, because I think that is something that we really would like to see some congressional action on, on siting and permitting legislation. There were a couple of versions of draft legislation uh, that were out earlier this year that would have provided federal siting and permitting authority for uh, interstate hydrogen pipelines and that is something that we and our members think would be very useful to help support development of a hydrogen economy in this country. And the second thing that would be really helpful just in terms of implementation is for our members and for us to continue to be able to hear from uh, DOE, particularly the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations and the Office of Technology Transitions, on what the expectations are for different components of the application, in particular understanding what is required for community benefits plans and how DOE envisions community engagement to occur, and then understanding kind of post-award how DOE looks at the process and how how it would work. One of the offices um, that Patrick mentioned is the Office of Grid Deployment, and we had seen, and they, they announced this publicly, so I'm not giving away any secrets here, but when they made the GRIP awards, the first round of GRIP awards in October, they shared that they would actually be sending information to each of the applicants who did not receive an award on what was deficient in their application. And information like that from the agencies is just really helpful, particularly for programs where there's multiple levels of funding, which is our understanding may be the case for the Hydrogen Hubs program as well.
1: And with both the the H two hubs and with the not all but probably many of the projects that will be eligible for GRIP funding, I imagine companies also have to concurrently work through some of the existing setting and permitting challenges. Because it's one thing if you're working in an existing right away or you're making upgrades to existing infrastructure, but I imagine the new builds are, are going to hit some of the headwalls that we've been experiencing for a while on the siding and permitting front.
0: Yeah, we were fortunate now to have R&D funding. We have programs to help match the investments companies are, are making on on clean energy generation and clean energy infrastructure. The part of that has been hobbling everything and will continue to make it a challenge is the siting and permitting, as, as you mentioned. It shouldn't take 17 years to build a transmission line, electric transmission line, and if we don't make some changes to ensure our permitting processes are efficient, legally durable, we're going to continue to run into these same challenges. We're not going to be able to maximize Inflation Reduction Act dollars. We're not going to be able to maximize bipartisan infrastructure law dollars. So we've made that message, I hope, loud and clear to the administration saying, hey, we're glad you're doing this, but we still need help in these areas on building out transmission lines. We still need this help on broadband. We still need this help on hydrogen or natural gas. Uh, We're making a big push on the hill. We have been uh, for the last last year plus to try and say, this is the next step. If you really want to lift all boats, we need to make some more changes to some environmental statutes. Again, to, to really benefit our customers and maximize federal investments.
1: And Patrick, what are the next steps for companies that may have applied for funding for the GRIP program or other programs that are funded by the bipartisan infrastructure law? I know implementation sounds like it has several steps involved. And I'm not sure exactly which program, but I had read that somebody received a project award and that meant they now got to go into the negotiation stage. So it sounds like th- there's quite some a few steps to work through, but it's good to see that the the process is moving.
0: Yeah, Sandy was just getting into that where you can be selected, and then you need to negotiate final details with whichever agency is awarding the funding, and it can be a difficult process on what the agency is expecting, what the company is expecting, and how you meet in the middle. There, um, there's a lot of paperwork that goes into it. It sounds great, uh, you know, when it's announced, and I think you know companies are excited, but it takes a lot more work to get you know after that. Um, so it's it's a long process, even even though the companies are excited. We're in that phase with a lot of programs where money has been announced, companies have been selected, negotiating. And again, as, as Sandy was pointing out, DOE providing comments on maybe here's why you were selected. We're also going to be providing feedback to the agencies. Okay, on the second round, we've done this on transportation. Hey, have you considered X, Y, and Z when you're looking at applications? Here's what we're hearing from our members. To make this a little more effective, we're bang for your buck, public-private partnership. We'd like to see this. So consider these changes next time you uh, have a funding announcement. And it was a five-year bill, so we'll see how quickly they try and use up the money. They've, They've actually increased some of the yearly allotments. We'll try and keep improving each round. Well, it's great to see that so much of this impactful bipartisan
1: infrastructure law funding already is kind of starting to roll out or at least the, the programs are stood up and, and moving along. So thank you both for the work you're doing to make sure that America's Electric Companies understand the different programs and, and are ready to engage and, and really find ways to deploy infrastructure in a way that makes the grid more resilient or the generating fleet more efficient and lower emitting and, and really do it in a way that keeps prices affordable for customers. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.